Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Each person's journey is unique. Our goal is to connect survivors to resources along the way on their path to healing. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. We are here to help survivors get access to justice. Join us on this journey. Here is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today, we are happy to welcome survivor Rolf Fryer to our show. Welcome, Rolf. We are so happy to have you. Thank you, Shaughnessy. And let me just say I'm very grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. Of course. Thank you so much. Uh, Let's jump right into it. So you live in Hawaii now, right? I do. I do. I grew up on the East Coast, but... My life was making a major change just in 2017. My career was uh, ending with the company I was at. My marriage was coming apart. And I decided that I really wanted to, before my time is up on this earth, to reach out and try and help others who have been through abuse. And so I decided I needed to move somewhere that I felt supported and I had the right energy around me. And Maui has always done that for me. So that's why I came here. That's great. You definitely, I'm, I'm jealous for sure as I sit in Indianapolis where it's starting to get cold. Um, <laughs> so you say you're from the East Coast and let's dive into your background a little bit because your story is one of intrafamily abuse. And so um, let's talk about where you're from and what your family looked like growing up. Sure. I was born in Montreal, Quebec, Canada in 1958. My mother is Latvian. She is um, one of nine children that escaped during World War II. My uh, grandmother and grandfather on her side had to split up during the war and they met because the the men were being drafted into the army. And so in order for him not to serve, they, they hid in the forest and stuff. So about a year later, they met up in a town in Germany and then emigrated to Canada. And my father left Germany at the age of 17, and they met in Montreal, and they got married, and a year later, I was born. It was a very religious family. My first home, my my memory of my first home is is an apartment in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Westmount, Montreal. I was very comfortable with... uh, God and spirituality, it's always, you know, it, it just has always made sense to me, and it's always been a part of my life. I have three sisters. I'm the oldest and only boy, and I have three younger sisters, and I have two stepsisters that joined the family after my mother died and my father remarried. Um, my father was an entrepreneur and a lay preacher. He liked self-autonomy and control control was a big thing for him and the family dynamics were such that while we lived in we lived in Montreal until I was about eight years old and then he moved us out into the country and in in Montreal it was it was there was some conditioning going on but it was very minor it was more you know I had friends at school I you know I had acquaintances and all that kind of stuff so it felt more like a normal childhood but when we moved to the farm when I was eight years old that's when things changed 
And as an adult, I can look back and see that there was some conditioning that was going on before we moved to the farm. And then it was even further after we moved to the farm. But that's when the trauma itself, the sexual abuse started to happen. So you began to be sexually abused by your father at eight years old when you moved out into the country? Yes, yes. My father, for some reason, my father had uh, was threatened by me. My aunt, Mary, would say that he couldn't let me win at a game. And as soon as he... As soon as I beat him at a simple game as a child, he would never play that game with me again. He just was intimidated for some reason by me. And what a lot of people don't understand about sexual abuse is that it's not really about the sex. It's about power. And my father wanted to exert control over every aspect of my life and me. Did he treat your sisters differently than he treated you? Absolutely. He had the ability of kind of isolating each one of us uh, siblings on our own little island, psychologically speaking. He had rules in the house, such as I wasn't allowed into my sister's rooms uh, in the evenings. I wasn't, you know, and if I was caught in there during the day and he didn't like it, I was chased out. I was given a lot of chores to do on the farm that kept me busy and isolated from my sisters as they stayed in the house and played with dolls and such. Um, and even uh, even to the point where I, at a certain age, he told my mother that she was to stop giving me attention because he, she was spoiling me. I wasn't going to turn into a man. So he, he was very successful in isolating each one of us until we, we really didn't know what was going on in, between other people's relationships with them. I never told anyone about what was happening to me at night until I started in therapy when I was in my 20s. So no one knew what was going on. So your dad obviously was sexually abusing you that whole time. He was also physically and emotionally abusive as well. And so is it fair to say that everyone, or at least people in the family saw that side of him, but didn't know about the sexual abuse? They saw what he allowed them to see pretty much. So one of his, one of his tactics was to uh, discredit me with family and friends. So you know, when we first moved to the farm, we would have friends come from the Montreal church where I had kids, friends and stuff. They would come and spend a, a, a Saturday afternoon. We'd have a corn roast and, we'd, you know, we'd walk to the hill and I would tell all the kids I grew up with there in Montreal what I had learned on the farm. And my father made it a point of criticizing me any moment he had if I gave information that was slightly off, like, this wasn't a Jersey, this was a Guernsey or whatever type of cow it was. He would put me down and basically make it look as if I didn't know what I was talking about. And at the time, it just felt like a personal attack. And But now as I'm an adult and I look back on it after years of therapy, I realized that what he was doing was trying to affect my reputation to the point that people would not believe me if I ever said anything that he didn't want them to know, <laughs> obviously. 
what was your oh. father's uh, reputation like within, you know, the rest of the family or the community or your church community? Because I know that your church community was a, an integral part of the family's dynamic all the way through your childhood. Yeah, I, he was excellent at manipulating people. For some reason, he had a way of telling a story or telling something that sucked people into the story and believed him. He always went for um, positions of piety. So he started a couple of churches as a lay person in, in the church. He tried to become a, an unordained pastor in the church. He preached a lot. You know, as an entrepreneur, he would be looked at by the local community as having answers for uh, the problems that they were having as far as electrical. And, you know, he would be called to fires to turn off the electrical. Like there was a lumber yard that caught fire that he turned the power off. So he, he, he tried to put himself into positions where others would look at him with some authority and, and piety. Um, and to some extent, that was bought uh, by most everyone. The family who got to know him and got to got the other side of him uh, eventually got figured him out. I mean, he was arrogant. He was opinionated. He had an impulse control issues and anger. He was very narcissistic. In fact, to the point where he believed that when he talked with God and God told him something that he told me many times that I just had to accept that that came from God, even though he was saying it. So he had a bit of a God complex, I guess you, you could say. But for the most part, he was able to manipulate most everyone to not see it. Only those who got really close and either got burned by his promises and relied on them and got burned or got the wrath when he didn't, they couldn't be manipulated to his advantage. That's when he started to get caught by those people. But he had such a position that no one really challenged it. So they just kind of went away mm -hmm. instead of, instead of dealing with it and confronting him, they would, they just kind of went away uh, and stopped dealing with it. It's unfortunately something that we see a lot with offenders or children is that the outside persona that they present to everyone else is not truly who they are. And it is because of that, that they're able to continue to perpetrate those crimes. So you were this little boy growing up into a young man and you didn't tell anyone. And I can only imagine how that must have been eating you from the inside out. So you said it got to a point where you did seek therapy in your twenties. What, what changed, like what happened in those years that made you realize you needed to get some help? Well, Typical with most sexual abuse or abuse survivors is that in order to, especially if it's done over a long period of time, one of the things they develop is the ability to, to kind of throw that in the trunk of your car, if you will, where it's out of sight, out of mind, and you're not dealing with it all the time. And some people call those repressed memories or lost memories. I had memories that I you know, I called it misfiling them, putting them away so I wouldn't run across them on day-to-day -day activities. And you forget about them over a period of time. But I couldn't give up on my familial relationship with my father and mother. And when I got married, my now ex-wife wanted the family to get close together. So 
we went back to Canada. I was going to boarding school in the United States and Michigan. And we went back to Canada and we spent a couple of years trying to see if we can't find a healing for the family. And they, um, my father tried to break up our marriage. He, he lied to both of us. He stole money from us. He manipulated us. He, it just turned from, it just got nastier and nastier until I had had enough. And I said, you know what? The only way I'm going to do anything with my life and protect my new wife was leave my family. I was distraught to the point where I was not functionable. I couldn't function very well. At um, that point, did anyone, had you told anyone about the sexual abuse yet? Did your wife know? Did no, anybody in the family know? Not even my wife. Not even my wife. I had shoved that so far back that I just never thought about it again. And after going to Canada and having all this happen, I started to work at Harding Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, or Worthington, Ohio, as a psych tech. And one of the perks they offered was free therapy with the uh, chaplain. He was a certified counselor therapist. And it was about a year in and I was, our marriage was, was hurting. You know, here we had been through the trenches of a, of a, a psychological war and we were out of it and life was much better but we weren't happy we weren't functioning well and i couldn't figure out why so i ultimately admitted that there's a problem here i can't deal with so i just started sharing it with the therapist you know just being around therapy and in the hospital and helping others and seeing how it's how therapy works i realized i needed it and so I went, and ultimately my uh, wife at the time uh, also saw the benefits of it, and she went too, and then we both ended up going to the same therapist after we went individually for couples therapy as well to just help heal our relationship, and it was during that, that process that the memory started to come back, and as the therapist sensed there was more, there was the, let's talk about how you grew up. Let's talk about that kind of stuff. And then the more we talked and the more that came out, the more I realized how much was there. And the memory started coming out. Actually, I had a trigger that made the memory come out. Um, I was invited to, uh, to be a best man in my sister's wedding. And it was after my mom had died. And it was held in a church we had never been to except once. And that's when my father took our family to try to minister to the church and woo them into the Seventh-day Adventist church and show an example of what a good Christian family was. And I could sense my sister was trying to recreate or recover that memory. And that memory, um, it, it really... It, it bothered me and I couldn't understand why I was bothered by it. And uh, we were away from home on a trip, a business trip my wife was on. And I had a dream where I was touched sexually, or there was touching sexually involving between me and my father. And that was the trigger that caused all the other memories to start coming out. And thank God for the trigger, but it was also very difficult process. 
Oh yeah. I can't even imagine going through because you have to relive some of that to get through it. I understand. And so how, how did that work for you? Like, did it, how did that transformation take place? Like what, what did it look like for in your life? Well, it, it opened the door for the therapist and I to start talking about any sexual inappropriate behavior. While I stated that I knew that this was just a dream and I, I don't have any specific memory that this dream actually happened. I did remember some other things and this thing started to come out. I'm not sure unless you've been through extended abuse, you understand this, but when you start sharing your truth, you don't share it all. Mm -hmm. You start with just little itty bitty nuggets that if they handle that well, then you know that, okay, I can share more. And it's almost a testing process. And you do it not just with strangers and not with just your family. You also do it with your therapist. That process, what you're trying to determine is, is the therapist trustworthy because your whole life you've run across people who couldn't be trusted with your truth. And so it was a slow process of he accepted this information, now let me tell him this. And then once I told him this information, it triggered another memory and the memories start coming out and I told him early on because I had training in psych and worked at a psych hospital, I knew that false memories could be a serious problem with healing. Um, and I know that you can't rebuild a life on false memories. You need, you need to be completely truthful. So I told him that I personally did not want him to lead any discovery and try and dig for more information that we allowed it to come out, that we didn't try to force things. Mm -hmm. And we always, we always checked on in on it. And he, he agreed to that. And it, it actually helped because that process and being able to describe it in a letter to the Seventh-day Adventist church conference that investigated my father later in life, that letter did a lot towards the credibility of what I had to say. So there did come a point where you, I would say, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but came public with your, with what happened to you. Did you just go to your family? Did you go to the church? How did that disclosure look? Well, again, just as you try to test people with little nuggets of truth, you also start very small with the very inner circle of people that you start to share with. So my father, uh, this was later in life, and I was still, I was in therapy, I was dealing with stuff, I was having anger issues because memories were coming forward, and I was getting angry at how my father had treated me and all of that, and my, my sister and her husband did a lot of Christian music, went to Canada to do a concert. And during the concert, my father showed up and tried to grab one of her sons while he was running down the hall. And he had never met the children. My sister wanted to make sure that the meeting was going to take place in a mutually and safe environment, mutually agreeable and safe environment. And he was forcing this issue to the point where she felt like he might try to kidnap one of the children. Goodness. So it triggered in me a need to do more than just talk about it in therapy. It triggered a need in me to want to try and stop him. So I wrote a letter confronting him about 
what I had remembered to that point, what I had gone through to that point, what I had witnessed to that point. And I sent it to him and immediate family members who were involved in this whole process and confronted him on it. And that then my sister who's, who did this concert, her father-in-law worked in the conference office for the church itself in Oshawa, Ontario. And they opened up an investigation into my father. And they, they had just founded a new sexual ethics committee, they called it. And what Ralph, what year was this? This would have been in 1997. Okay. Yeah. And we were the second group that had the second case they took on. And I had sent a letter detailing out all of the issues I had with my father. I sent it to my father and I sent it to everyone he had ever involved in the manipulation and, and trying to, to affect my life. Uh, he would draw in conference officials and pastors and strangers and friends to try and, you know, get them to talk to me, to make me come back to him because I left the family in 1983. Um, so he used others to manipulate and coerce me to do things and trying to, you know, so I included everyone he, he involved in the manipulation. And the church then did an investigation and my father is a clever man, but I wouldn't call him intelligent because he used a obscure document that one of the prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventist Church had written about how um, boys who masturbate, uh, their souls lost, they would die, they mentally retarded, you know, all these negative things. And it was wrong. It was a sin. And so he thought that he would frame what he did to me as trying to stop me from masturbating. Um, the aggression, the sexual touching, the stripping me down, uh, uh, the examination, the fondling, the hitting my penis, beating me up uh, during this process. He thought that the church would accept this argument as a reason for saving my soul was a good reason to do this to him, you know, to save his soul. I'm going to do this to him. So he, he sold that and tried to sell that to the church. And he stated in that investigation that everything I had said about him that had happened between us actually happened. Everything that I said was firsthand knowledge. So he I, he actually admitted it. He said, yes, that all happened. But he tried to justify happened. it. Exactly. So he would say that, you know, he was justified in doing these uh, examinations of us children as we were young while we were naked and that kind of stuff because he had medical training. So he would say this to the investigation committee. And the investigation committee were buying it and I could see they were buying he had medical training and so when it was my turn to, to talk or rebut I would say what was your medical training in and where did you get it and he had to admit it was when he was in 
It was in a Boy Scout group in Germany. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It was first aid. It's what to do in case you, you know, you cut yourself. Oh my goodness. So you said you had, when you were rebutting it, what was the format of the um, investigation or this hearing that you're talking about? Or did you just come in and kind of say your piece? Then your father said your piece and then you got to ask questions. How did that work? Were there, were there attorneys who were conducting any of it? There were no attorneys. There were eight members in the committee and they were all, uh, church members, you know, various positions in the conference. It was a confidential meeting so that nothing could be shared outside of the meeting. It would be a very long conference table with, on the other end would be my father and my oldest sister. She's two years younger than I served as his attorney, I guess, or counselor. She has always denied that anything has happened, even though she was present in the meeting when he said that everything he did to me was, I was, was actually happened. And she was trying to bring legitimacy to, the, to his side of the table in the meeting because she was also the head of a uh, psychiatric department in a major hospital in the United States. So she was trying to bring her career and position oh, wow influence the meeting and act as his attorney and whisper in his ear what he should and shouldn't say. And at the other end of the table where our family members were, my sister uh, testified, the one who had her children tried to be abducted by him. My niece, a niece of mine testified, an uncle testified, an aunt testified, and I testified. We weren't allowed to speak directly to him, which was hard for us not to do at times. We would bring our uh, complaints up and our, and our experiences. He would respond, and then we could have a rebuttal to his response. And he even brought up an experience I hadn't remembered in that meeting. That's how confident he was in his defense. I hadn't remembered that he actually had hit my penis several times as a child. Uh, one time he would bring me into his, into my parents' bedroom when no one else was around. He had me pull my pants down and then he lectured me about touching myself and then he slapped my penis. This was when I was eight or nine years old and, and I hadn't remembered that specific event and he brought it up. Wow. They, uh, the committee said at the end, they apologized that I had to go through all of that. And they said that he would have been found, they would have ruled against him just based on what he said, not, not even on our testimony. So they recommended he be excommunicated and not let back into the church until he had gone through therapy, had begged forgiveness from his abusers and had done some community service, I guess. And did that happen? No. The Adventist church is structured in such a way that money flows up, but they can't dictate to the local church what to do in their local churches. They can only advise. And so they sent a letter advising what should happen. And my father went back to the local church and then lied and denied that anything was, that it was all false and it wasn't true. And he manipulated them into believing him instead of the conference that investigated it. Well, he knew them, right? So he, it was easy for him because he'd yeah. probably been grooming these people all along anyway. Yeah, exactly. He was, you know, the first elder worked for him. <laughs> 
the uh, he founded the church. He brought them all into the church. So uh, they they just couldn't find their way clear of thinking that this man could have done what he's what was accused accused of. That is certainly a common thread that we see. How did it feel when the church committee said to you that they did believe you and that they recommend all these things? Did you feel any kind of closure or was it an important step in your journey? I wish every sexual abuse and every abuse survivor could experience that. Support for survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen and Malad. Cohen and Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now, back to our show. I wish every sexual abuse and every abuse survivor could experience that because it is a validation that I had never gotten to that point. It, 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 is, it touches me so deeply that all I could do is start crying. Mm-hmm. One of the characteristics of a child of sexual abuse is before healing, they have no emotions. They can't feel emotion. They can't express emotion. They have locked things up so much within themselves that they can't allow themselves to feel anything. And after healing, the emotions start to come out. And sometimes I get more emotional than, you know, um, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so now emotions come out freely. So it, I just cried and I just felt such a relief and, and exhilaration afterwards. It's interesting that you say that because I know that you are, have been in the process of writing a manuscript, a memoir of sorts, and I read it, and you you called it The Alchemy of Precious Scars, and you went into um, a part where you talked about, I don't know how you pronounce this, but Kensugi, the Japanese are, are preparing broken pottery with yeah. precious metals, and how the product after the change sometimes is just as beautiful or beautiful in a different way than what it was before. And you likened that to the journey of a sexual abuse survivor. And I just thought that was really poignant. Thank you. Yes, it struck me. My sister was a student missionary to Japan and she introduced me to Kintsugi, which is just basically taking broken pottery and fusing it together with precious metals, gold and silver. And in Japanese culture, they consider a repaired piece of pottery to be even more precious than before it was damaged. And one of the things that I struggled with for most of my life, and still sometimes still find myself being critical of myself, and that is, I felt like a broken person. You know, I, uh, I had a father couldn't love his only son and abuse him. My mother was an enabler. I didn't feel wanted by them at all or loved. My father would say that he loves me in principle because the Bible tells him he has to. I felt the fact that I can't have children because of the way he's treated me in his abuse, because I couldn't give my wife children, because I developed some struggles with my own sexuality and 
expression or lack of expression and inability to, to handle certain aspects. For most of my life, it's for now, but for most of my life, I felt like a broken person. I felt like that broken potter. And the joy and completeness I felt after getting through therapy and finding a path to recovery reminded me so much of that valuable piece of Kintsugi art that was repaired and it's now, it's never going to be the same, but it is considered to be even more precious now because of what it's been through and how it's healed. And that just touches me on a level that it's hard to explain and I want to share that love. That's a really beautiful sentiment. And I think just a great way of putting it it really demonstrates the truth and how it, how it actually is for people and how, you know, you can come to this place eventually where it is beautiful. It is. And it's such a transformation. It's such a journey and it takes a different amount of time for different people and different things help others. Does anything stand out for you that you can say in both ways, anything that anyone did that was especially helpful to you as you're going through all this and anything that anyone did that was, especially harmful to you when you're going through this or even re-traumatizing? Hmm. Uh, I guess, I guess that what I would have to say is the biggest difference in my life were certain people. So as a, when my family moved out to the country, when I was just eight years old, I lived with my first and second grade teacher in Montreal while they moved to the country and I lived with them for a few months. They gave me an example of what a loving family could be. They gave me hope that one day perhaps I could have that. Maybe not with my family I grew up in, but maybe it, it is achievable, you know? It does exist out there. And then during during high school, I was sent off to boarding school at 14, which is when the abuse stopped. Um, so from 8 to 14 is when I would be abused uh, anywhere from two or three times a week at night. It was late at night after everyone had gone to sleep. I was off at boarding school at 14, and uh, they wanted to kick me out of boarding school. I was having too many struggles emotionally dealing with being alone for the first time at such a young age, not knowing anyone, uh, the abuse I had been through, I was still wetting my bed. I was, I had lost interest in, in really anything that they wanted to kick out of school. And an old uh, principal, the Emanuels, took me in and took me into their home and they helped me find some ability to study and how to organize my schedule and eat properly and sleep properly. And, Things that you would think children grow up knowing, but when you grow up pretty much alone, coping life alone, you don't learn these things. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that happened. And then the, when I was uh, just before I, I had met my to-be first wife and I was uh, having to decide which path my life was going to take because my father was trying to manipulate what was going to happen in my life. And I had met someone that I was falling in love with, and I had to come to a pivotal point where I had to decide whether I was going to take this path or that path. And they helped me to make a decision that wasn't my best interest. 
Quite frankly, I have to credit my first wife. If it wasn't for her, I would not have made it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the therapy I had with George Gibbs was critical. My first wife's family and extended family took me in as if I was one of them. I didn't have a lot of critical relationships other than my first wife of George Gibbs, my therapist. But a lot of books that I read into and were important to me, such as The Mastery of Love by Don Miguel Ruiz, helped me to understand and to forgive my father and how this passes from generation to generation. It was critical in helping me to get to that point. Alan Cohen and Wayne Dyer helped me to understand how my intentions and how my choices affect my life and how I have some control over that. Jess Lair helped me to to see how religion, what place it has and how it can sometimes get into a position that is detracting from life rather than helping in life. I'd say the the most critical, important thing that I been through was to leave my family when I did because I had to get away from the circle of family friends church members and everybody who had been bamboozled by him to establish relationships with people who didn't know him and only knew me and then understood who I was and then they listened to my truth and they listened to it and It was only then by opening up and starting to share and having that accepted in therapy with my wife, with her family, with some church members and friends I dared to share with. That's ultimately that that was critical. If I had stayed involved with my father, I don't believe I would be here today. I would have committed suicide. That's so important and makes so much sense that you have to establish your own foundation before you can really face what's going on over there. And, and not just your abuser, but the people around him who know both of you, because he's had a heck of a long time to manipulate and groom them in the way that he wanted them to see you and to see him. So that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else that you want to say to survivors in general that you think could be helpful for anyone who's going through this now, who's been through this, or has a loved one who's going through something like this? Yes. Actually, I would like to address three groups of people. One is the survivors themselves. One is sexual abuse professionals, therapists, and those who love survivors of abuse, and the general public. And one is survivors. Hope is a blessing and a curse. It'll help you get through the worst of times. But when things don't go right, you can almost feel like all is lost when your hope is dashed. So don't allow you to get yourself too high and don't allow yourself to get too low. Don't compare yourself to others. You're not going to be like anyone else out there. You're recovering from something that Many people believe when they hear the details of what you've been through, don't believe they could survive it. You now think differently because of it. You were in the trenches, you were in a war zone. You are suffering from PTSD. You are suffering from traumatization from so many experiences that you just couldn't fully feel at the moment that you just had to shove it away to deal with later. 
And until you deal with them, they're going to continue to affect your life. And you are learning to overcome things that others can't imagine. You see dangers where they will never see dangers. You will sabotage relationships because of your baggage and your past. You will struggle with a lot of things, as I did. But keep telling your truth. Be careful who you share it with and how much. Start slowly. Pick the people carefully. Understand that this is a very difficult topic to talk about, and especially people who have no experience with it will be very uncomfortable with it. Find a good therapist. Not all therapists are great for everyone. Working at Harding Hospital taught me that. We had a therapist there who believed that to get the best and most accurate answer out of a patient was to antagonize them and get them. Oh angry. my gosh. And that created a lot of problems for patients who couldn't handle that kind of therapy. So look for a good therapist that you mesh well with. He's not too ad adversarial or she. They use talk or EMR therapy, rapid eye movement therapy. It's very helpful. They don't force you to talk. They don't put words in your mouth. They don't make suggestions of what might happen or what they allow you to work that out. They allow you to think outside the box and they are comfortable with you discussing anything, including if you choose a therapist who is religiously affiliated, make sure the therapist is comfortable with you talking about atheism and things that are not religious and challenging your religion. You're not going to get rid of all the illusions and lies that have been told to you your whole life if you're not willing to confront the illusions. To sexual abuse professionals and people who love them, understand that abuse survivors think differently and they see threats where you don't see a threat necessarily. They are looking for reasons not to trust you. They're not looking for reasons to trust you. They're looking for reasons not to trust you because... We have shared with individuals who have not kept our, our secrets safe. And that safety is critical to feel in order to heal and to move, to be honest and to move forward. So be careful with that. Try not to be too critical or use sarcasm, believe mm -hmm. it or not. Brene, Brene Brown, she did a post. Oh, I love her. I love Brene. <laughs> she did a great post recently on LinkedIn. And it says sarcasm comes from the late Greek word sar sarcasian, meaning to tear flesh. That's right. It means to tear flesh, which is what predators do to their prey psychologically. They're ripping their flesh apart. They're living, they're ripping their life apart. So when you use sarcasm or you're criticized people who have been through sexual abuse, they will internalize that and they will feel it much more deeply than you might expect them to. Look for support groups that you can share your experiences with so you can get support. And understand that the victim has a hole in them that, that they're trying to get filled and may never be fulfilled or may take a very long time to be filled. And it will only get filled by them recovering, doing the recovery work, and ultimately forgiving themselves. Yes, you heard me right. The victim has to forgive themselves. Believe it or not, I blamed that eight-year-old boy. I was angry at that eight-year-old boy for letting me down, for not protecting me, allowing that to happen. And as crazy as that sounds, it's what 
you experience because you would give anything to not have gone through that. To everyone else, don't assume that sexual abuse happens elsewhere. It happens in your backyard. It happens so much that the statistics show that more than likely you are running across 20 people a day that have been sexually abused. If you just look at the statistics, one in 10 children will be abused before their 18th birthday, according to Darkness to Light Organization. 70% of all reported sexual assaults happened in children under 17. And only 38% of those who have been sexually abused ever reported. It is pervasive, it is everywhere. And just because you don't know me or you don't know my story or you can't identify with my ethnic background or my education or the country I've lived in, my geography, it is happening everywhere. And if you keep your eyes open, perhaps you'll be in a position to allow an abuse survivor to reach out to you and find a way to help them escape what they're going through. That's really good advice. I don't think that I could possibly have said it better. Um, we're going to end with the three questions. Uh, first question, what does courage mean to you? Well, I did some notes on this. So from a religious perspective, for those out there who are religious, going through the valley of the shadow of death and just keeping walking forward until you get out the other side. That's courage to me. Surviving the abuse is courage. Getting out the other side without taking your life is courage. Putting one foot in front of the other when you have every reason to give up, but you don't. You keep plugging along and you keep challenging yourself to heal and to grow. Facing life when all you want to do is die takes courage. It takes work and dedication and Healing is actually probably harder work than surviving actual abuse. Yeah. Because you are having to undo all the lies and illusions that have been created and built up in order to make you into a, a compliant victim that is easy to manipulate and keep quiet because you have to keep quiet in order for this to continue. Yes. And for victims to choose to want to put a halt to their abuser's options and behavior. That's my motivation for going to the church, for ultimately going to the police, for him to be charged, even though he didn't end up having to spend any time in jail due to technicalities with Canadian law. Having that desire to say, you know what, I'm going to do what I can to stop this guy from ever doing this to anyone else. That's Kurt. Absolutely. What is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Strangely enough, it was something written in my yearbook at boarding school at, at a high school. Uh, it was teachers who I hadn't even, I had taken one class. It was a husband and wife teacher pair. And I'd taken one class from one of them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know it at the time, but they wrote this in everybody's yearbook. <laughs> but they said in my yearbook, they said, you can do anything you put your mind to. I had never considered that to be an option. I thought I was lost. I thought I was damaged goods. I thought I 
didn't have a life. I didn't think I had a future. I didn't think, I couldn't think beyond the day. I couldn't hope for it tomorrow. I, it was too hard just to make it through the day. Just being positive, encouraging like that, even though it was a generic phrase they gave to everyone in their textbooks, it made the biggest difference because it, it said, well, maybe if they see something in me, maybe, maybe there is something there. Absolutely. The power that teachers and trusted individuals like that have is so amazing to know that, you know, some kids, maybe they've never heard anything like that before. So the, what it can do for certain kids is very powerful. Lastly, what is one question you wish more people would ask you? Well, they don't probably know enough about my story to really ask me really poignant questions. So I would say that for victims, help. Reach out to somebody who's been through it and be willing to say help. Ask for help. How do I find a good therapist? I would love to be able to help somebody find a good therapist and get along there, down the road of their healing. How do, how do you deal with your demons? Why am I struggling with my therapy? Um, how do I move beyond therapy into actually thriving on life instead of being just a survivor? Those are all critical questions for victims. And for others, is like, how can I help? What can I do? How do I recognize how whether abuse might be happening? And what is the appropriate way to, to get involved? It's not as simple as you think, because these, these victims are in an environment that are very manipulative. And if someone gets wind that they're getting potentially getting caught, that could cause them to uh, get even more abusive or hide it even more or take the child and run away and move somewhere else. How to intervene is difficult. And I think the best way to do that would reach out to others who've been through the therapy and found the way to the other side. That's great. That's really, really, really wonderful. Everything you said, Rolf, thank you so much. Truly valuable information that you have shared with us today. Thank you. Absolutely. I appreciate it very much. Of course. Thank you for having the courage to step into the light and share your journey with others. And it helps so much. I know everyone I talk to listens to the show say it helps so much to know that they're not alone. And as always to the listeners, thank you for listening. Submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.